attribute that there are uh, styles of music that are not necessarily wrong. There are obviously wrong styles of music, but there are styles of music that are not wrong. Um, but they may not be the best, most appropriate styles of music to use in a congregational setting. And, you know, let's be realistic, folks. A lot of the problem that we have here with this is that a lot of this is subjective. Um, our backgrounds, our history, the, the, the exposure that we have, the teaching that we have had, all factor into this. What I just want to do this morning is take a little bit of time and, again, very quickly and superficially trace um, just a couple of the major controversies not of today but that have and in, in, in influences in church music um, in recent history okay uh, here is to me a fascinating verse for a lot of reasons one of which is that to my knowledge it is the first known commentary on what we might call the the corporate activity of the congregation um, Acts chapter 2 is when we see the church come together the day of Pentecost has come uh, we have believers meeting um, under in, in Solomon's porch, which is a, a large courtyard area of the temple complex. What you have, you know, I mean, on a, on a much larger scale, what you basically have is the equivalent of, I mean, if, if the, the Muslims came and set up a small mosque in our foyer, um, you kind of get the, a little bit of the idea of what it's like having a church in Solomon's porch in the temple complex. Um, but here's a commentary on what the church was doing. What was the church doing? Okay, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Where's the music? Where's the singing? I'm not saying they didn't sing because I think the Bible certainly lends itself to understand that they did sing. But I think one of the first questions that I'm going to raise is this. Is music as big a deal to God in the realm of corporate worship, which is what we're doing this morning, in case you did not know, as we make it out to be? Which doesn't become an open door for us to do any kind of musical style, but I think really does just simply beg the question of how critical is it really to have, you know, we would say, if we didn't have music, we're not doing it right. Okay. Um, another verse. Okay. Here's one of the reasons that I would argue that we do understand that, that congregations did use music. So I'm not, please folks, don't misunderstand this. I'm not trying to take us out of the realm of singing. Okay. I'm not, I'm not um, trying to prepare the way to eliminate the music program. Um, I'm just raising a question. Um, Within the core things that we discover the church doing on the day of Pentecost um, and in its subsequent activity, the emphasis is on fellowship, it's on the breaking of bread, the Lord's table, it is upon prayer, and it is upon doctrine. Um, I think implied in that is that anything that we're going to, have, that we're going to want to do musically must complement those things and can never in any way be contradicting any of those things or outside of the realm of those things um, Ephesians 519 speaking to yourselves in <laughs> uh, speaking yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord 
Um, okay, and, and we're going to spend some time looking at this verse in, in much greater detail. Um, but it certainly does lend itself to the notion that music is more than just individual. Um, I think, and, and I want to be careful here because I've not studied it enough to speak authoritatively, but, but I, I don't think that Paul is limiting this to our own personal um, musical listening, that he is referring to this within the greater scope of our interaction together, singing to ourselves. Um, so we know that music is, is part of the church life, um, and I'm not trying to argue that it isn't, but I would raise the question whether it is the major, a major aspect of the church life in the way that we commonly think of it. Um, we tend to view music as in some way and some measure preparatory, that music comes first to prepare. Um, I, I think that we would really have a very difficult time arguing that adamantly in the Bible, that music is designed to be preparatory. Um, Bill? Yes, saying yeah, you, yourselves, plural. Well, I mean, you could argue that he's talking to just a group of people, plural, about their own personal, but I don't think so. That's what I'm getting at. I don't think he is. Um, in fact, I'm going to, you know, I want to make sure that I've got it right because I'm getting ready to put a lot of weight on that when, when I start to talk to us about our kind of music. Um, we know that there's music in the church, and we know that music can be a little bit of a problem. Um, next verse. And it's not just music. Paul here is talking to the Corinthians about some of the dilemmas that he's having with them, and he's talking here within the realm of their spiritual gifts and their distorted emphasis of some aspects of spiritual gifts and their use within the congregation. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. And Paul goes on to say, let all things be done decently and in order. Um, so we're, we're looking for... Uh, uh, and, and I want to be re I want to be very careful. I'm, you know, my wife and I were talking yesterday on the way home from our wedding, and we both came to the conclusion that spontaneity is not my thing. I am not a spontaneous man. Um, I don't like surprises. Um, very rarely, like you know, once a decade, do I just go, "Hey, let's just up and do something." I like things to be planned, orchestrated, calculated measured, let's think through this, let's get a plan, let's get an idea, you know, and then then we'll proceed. I want to be very careful about imposing Ken Largent's personality on the Bible, but the Bible does say, let all things be done decently and in order. I don't think that a congregational church service um, should be a, a regular occasion of occurrence of, hey, what do you want to do next? Um, okay, I digress. So let's move on here then, and again, we're talking, we're going to take just, uh, what was it, this week was the 40th um, anniversary of man going to the moon. 
um, a small step for a man, a big step for mankind. We're going to cover church music history in, in several large steps this morning. Um, music is very important in the Bible. There's little record of its exact place, use, or style in the New Testament. Again, I'm not trying to argue against music. I'm just trying to make the point that if we really want to be true to the scriptures, um, we have to be very careful about saying this is the way Bible music had to be. By the way, one of the reasons that we know music was important in, in the church practice was from archaeological excavations where we have not only found fragments of, of the Bible, but we have found fragments of music. We know that the early church sang. Uh, next slide. Um, we know that music was an important part of the Old Testament worship. David certainly went through um, he divided the priests into 24 divisions, or what our Bible calls courses. They rotated through, they, they sang on a rotating basis in what was an all-male choir. Um, it does not... Um, um, and again, I just mentioned, we know from archaeology that the early church used music. We, you know, we can go back into the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th centuries, and we have musical fragments, poetry. Um, much of the Bible, folks, is musical. I mean, it's not um, not necessarily set to music, but we have an entire section of our Old Testament called poet poetry. Um, and even in passages in books that are not poetry, we find music. Um, in Exodus, we have a lengthy song, Moses' Song of Deliverance. Um, Isaiah has, do you know how many right off the top of your head, how many servant songs there are in Isaiah? Four, six? I think six, Isaiah has six what are called servant songs, um, where, the, where the measure and the meter of rhythm are definitely musical rather than just prose. Um, so I'm not, again, I, I want to be very careful here. Um, I'm not trying to, to reduce music. I'm just trying to make point out that the Bible does not give us a clear pattern, okay? Our order of service is not inspired where you start with a song and then you have another song and then there's a choir special and then there's a special music that's not inspired um, so if we change that or modify that it might trouble us in the fact that we tend to become very comfortable with tradition but we've not necessarily compromised the faith or done God some kind of an injustice by and I don't have any plans to do that I'm just saying that we I want to keep reminding us of those things so that we kind of have them. I need to remind myself that my traditions are not inspired because I'm a pretty regimented fellow. There have always been conflicts, or there have, maybe, maybe always is really a bad way of putting it. There have often been conflicts among God's people with, with reference to music and what they did. All right, we could hit the next one. For a lot of the early church's history, and I don't want to say the only, but the main source of church music was the singing of psalms. Okay, I mean, like you have the psalms, the 150 psalms that you have in your songbook. Um, uh, it's called psalmody, and for much of early church history, this was what was sung. Um, if we can move on to the next slide, I'll incorporate. <clears throat> okay. 
there were, there were controversies about this. And, and here are some of the ways that we know that this was done. And again, I'm speaking very generally. I'm not making exclusive statements, but in very generally. They, were, they tended to be sung without instruments or without harmony. Um, there tended to be um, some dimension of the chant to much of the psalmody. They were oftentimes sung in Latin in the early church because Latin was the religious language. Oftentimes they were sung only by church leaders, which if you have a Roman Catholic background, you probably have some familiarity with the way hymnody worked. Um, in sometime in the Middle Ages, middle, you know, late Middle Ages, there became a cause of controversy as people began to add instrumental accompaniment and harmony to the singing of psalms. And there was a huge outcry over this. And the argument went something like this. Does the argument sound familiar? That's going to turn worship music into a performance. And we're going to denigrate worship because music is going to be performed. So if we use a musical instrument like a piano or an organ or a guitar or a violin we are performing and if you incorporate harmony um, into this music you are going to denigrate worship that that is something that is displeasing to God and when they began to do this, when they began to sing specific notes, when they began to write music, put it on paper, assign notes and harmony, people called that line singing. And there were huge controversies in the church about line singing over a long period of time about whether a church should sing line music. Um, now what I did, and, and I put the... The, the reference up here, if you're interested, you can go to a website called covenanter.org. Um, it's going to be in its doctrine, it's, it's, going, to have, it's going to be very reformed, um, very Presbyterian type in its doctrine. And I fast forwarded quite a bit here because this is a quotation taken from the 1840s. But I did that because I want you to understand that there are still segments, even to this day, even in 2009, there are places and segments and churches that are arguing that the only acceptable music is psalmody and that we shouldn't use instruments. Harmony is very suspect. It is very suspicious. It borders on being worldly and we should not do this. This was a, a minister, a Presbyterian minister by the name of Donald McLaren and this is what he wrote. He, and he wrote this lengthy article. You can read it in its entirety. We propose to show that the psalms contained in the Holy Scriptures are the only songs of praise which the church is warranted by the express appointment of God to sing in his worship. So here's, here's his point. We're going to go to the Bible, we're going to defend music, and the only music that you can defend from the Bible is the singing of the Psalms. So what would he think about a church like Westwood Heights? Thumbs down, liberal, right? Um, we don't cut it. The reason that those numbers are out of sequence is that he has about 10 
specific points that he argues. I didn't try and reproduce all 10. I gave you the website. You can look at it if you want to rummage around there. But here are some of the ones that I thought were the most, a lot of the points that he made were technicalities about the Psalms themselves. Okay? Here's, but here's his argument. Now, how do you argue against this, folks? It is God's songbook. Okay, let me flip that and let me ask you this question. I probably have a hard time selling you that the only songbook we should use is the Psalms, right? But how come we don't sing any of the Psalms? It is God's music. I mean, when you sing a Psalm, you can't avoid this. You're singing inspired words. The advantage of that, folks, is we're, we're never going to go wrong in the, in, the, in, in the words, in the lyrics of a song, if God wrote the lyrics. Right? Never going to be a question about the lyrics if God himself wrote them. We know that those lyrics are pure and untainted. No question. Uh, uh, he argues that the Psalms were designed to be sung. Well, since, that's, since they were poetry and, and we talk about them being sung, obviously so. Okay, his argument number five, and I love this, and the corollary that follows. The Psalms were sung in the Old Testament. All right, let me throw a, let me throw a theological phrase to you. Regulatory principle. You familiar with the regu- How many of you are familiar with the, with the phrase regulatory principle? I know, Bill, you've got to be. I, I, Kurt Spaulding, I know, has got to be. Bible college guys, unless you went to my Bible college, have got to be. Uh, <laughs> The regulatory principle deals with what we can and cannot do in church, and it basically falls into one of two arguments. Argument number one, you can only do in a church service what God says you can do. Argument number two, you can do anything in a church service unless God specifically says you can't. So one tends to be rather narrow. You can only do in a church service what God said, and God said sing psalms, and he didn't say anything else, and we're not going to sing anything else. Or, if God didn't say, God never said, I couldn't sing other songs, so we're going to sing other songs. The problem with that, folks, once we've gone into that room, is now we're fighting about the boundaries of that room. We've said... And I don't mean we Westwood Heights. I mean we Christians and American Christians um, in the last couple hundred years have argued adamantly that we did not need to be bound by the Psalms. We only needed to be bound by what God specifically banned. And as you know, anytime we have that conversation, we never agree on what God has specifically banned. The corollary that goes with Psalms were sung in the Old Testament, and, and I put it up here as a corollary. He's got an entire sentence or maybe paragraph about it in his article, Donald McLaren, in 1840, is that when the law ended, the use of musical instruments was under the law of Moses. The law of Moses ended. Therefore, the use of musical instruments in a church service ended. So not only are we obligated biblically to sing the Psalms, we are biblically prohibited because we are out from under the law, we are biblically prohibited from using musical instruments in our services. What? 
Bill says, wow. Do you understand the argument? Janelle. She wants to know what he does with Ephesians 5.19. I don't know. My guess is going to be that he is going to, to address that as your own individual music, not music in the church. And again, we have to remember now, we're talking here, this is an argument. I don't agree with his argument, but his argument is being made in the context of what can we do when we come together as a congregation. Um, what? Well, Bill says there isn't anything wrong with acapella. And is there anything wrong with acapella music? No. Um, there isn't anything inherently or intrinsically wrong with acapella music. Okay, so that was one of the controversies, and that lingered for many, many years. Um, from sometime in the Middle Ages, even to some extent, even to this day, there are churches that just will not use musical instruments. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who was a Baptist, and a pretty good one, by the way, they did not use musical instruments in his congregation. Um, all of the singing was a cappella. 1517, of course, Martin Luther um, nailed his 95 theses to the wall. The Reformation began, uh, began and whether we like it or not, um, we have some measure of obligation to at least respect the contribution of the Lutherans because they opened the door for a lot of what we're comfortable with in music today. Um, uh, Martin Luther, among other reform reformers, and this was a big thing in the Reformation, folks, because prior to the Reformation, religion was done in Latin. Um, and of course, as the Roman Empire expanded and split, then you had the, the eastern part doing Greek and the western part doing Latin, but Latin still prevailed as the major religion, particularly in our part of the, what influenced us, the western part of the Roman Empire. Church was done in Latin, music was done in Latin. Almost nobody spoke Latin unless you were well-educated. Um, there really was a lengthy period of history where people went to church and didn't have a whole lot of idea what was being said. Um, one of the things that the reformers argued, the Bible was in Latin. One of the things that the reformers argued was that religion ought to be done in the language of the people. Um, if you're German, you ought to have a German Bible. And if you're German, you ought to have German hymns. You ought to be able to sing in German. Um, Martin Luther advocated music sung by the entire congregation. Let's everybody sing. Not just the monotone minister singing. Um, he also, and of course, what's the most famous of these? He, he, he used religious, and many of the reformers did, they advocated that you could write religious melodies and set them to either brand new tunes or to existing what we would call secular tunes. And the most famous example of that, of course, is the, the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which was a hymn that Martin Luther wrote but the tune was a popular secular music. Uh, I gotta be careful here because <clears throat> um, 
imagine if we wrote a hymn to the tune of the national anthem or um, somebody help me out here because my brain is happy birthday that's a good one what if we what if somebody wrote a hymn set to the tune of happy birthday how would we react to that got a new song that we're going to start learning folks it's it's new words but you're familiar with the tune happy birthday um, as you can imagine these things set off firestorms um, these were public debates people wrote about them and argued about them and they didn't have television but they had print media and, um, okay now we're going to fast forward again and we're going to come to the English colonies and we have to remember that particularly at this point in time that the colonies are still English and they think very much English they're not um, they're not governed as Americans I mean they're the American colonies and that's a whole other story but we have a man by the name of Isaac Watts Isaac Watts is called the father of English hymnody psalmody the singing of the Psalms hymnody the singing of hymns um, I think that Isaac Watts made an argument that is hard to refute and his argument was simply this if we sing only the Psalms then no congregation is ever going to sing about the finished work of Jesus Christ in its clarity yeah Diane said that would be like me preaching exclusively from the Psalms great point what if what if we said we're not going to preach out of anything but the Old Testament um, Isaac Watts was an amazing poet. Um, Isaac Watts thought in poetry. Isaac Watts spoke in poetry. He spoke in poetry so much and so often that his parents whipped him for it. Can you imagine that? How you doing? Having a problem with one of my kids. What's wrong? I can't get him to stop saying poems. Um, and along and, and certainly Isaac Watts was not the only one but he was one of the major one with men like Charles and John Wesley and John Newton they wrote music that exalted the nature attributes and doctrine of God um, and there is and we're probably I'm gonna probably try and take some time to do this folks but but it is worth noting some of the very fundamental differences in our very own songbook between 17th century music and 18th and 19th century music particularly 19th century music there is a major shift in style and emphasis that comes then came the Americans um, and this is I'm gonna throw this up here this is really I think a book that everybody ought to read um, especially everybody who especially every American Christian like us um, it's called the democratization of American Christianity it's written by a guy by the name of Nathan Hatch um, in it he talks about music but he talks about much more than music um, 
if you read Nathan Hatch's book, you will, you will learn where people like us learn to think. Um, what, shaped, what shaped American religion, um, apart from just the Bible itself. Um, and he quotes some of this, most of this information I got from him. He says that the era, and he's quoting actually from a musical expert. He says the era 1780 to 1830 saw the development of Christian folk texts. Christian folk music. Um, church in the Wildwood. <laughs> Christian folk music. Um, here's a quote from the book, which borrowed indiscriminately from a wide variety of secular tunes of love, war, homesickness, piracy, robbery, and murder. Um, this era, folks, the, the 19th century produced a huge quantity of the music that we love and treasure. Um, at the risk of being offensive, which is really not my intention, when I, when I have talked to folks about wanting to do, spend some time in Sunday school talking about music, people tend to be apprehensive to wonder how contemporary I'm trying to drive us. And the answer is, not at all. Quite honestly, in a church like Westwood Heights, I'm not as concerned about our inclination to contemporary music as I'm concerned about our fascination with theological dribble that we love. Songs that are not about anything, but that are treasured to us because we love the tune. That may not be bad music if you put it on a CD in your car and listen to it bopping down the road, but are not necessarily appropriate for congregational worship, like Church in the Wildwood. It's not about anything. That's why we don't sing it. Rick. Well, put, on, put up the next slide. You must have been looking over my shoulder. Okay, speaking generally, and again, I'm speaking very generally, here is one of the biggest transitions. There were two major transitions that we saw, folks, in 19th century music. We're going to talk a little bit about, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about both of them in some detail as we go. Okay? Take your Bible, if you would. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 19. So I don't have to go back there on the slide. <clears throat> Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. If that has a legitimate congregational application, let me give you a specific illustration. We sang, we sang last Sunday before the throne. We tend to sing it in the second person. In other words, it's a song about God, but we do not necessarily sing it to God. Right? I mean, take your songbook. Let me show you what I mean. 
inside front cover. Okay, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lived and pleads for me. My name is, name is graven on his hands. We don't sing, my name is graven on your hands. Would it be wrong to sing that? No. But it's not wrong to sing, my name is graven on his hands, I think, because Ephesians 5.19 is helping me with some measure of corporate worship, singing to yourselves with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There is a sense in which the music, folks, is music about God to God, but it is to each other about God. Um, much, not all, much of earlier Christian music was heavily emphasized on God, He, or the congregation, we, with the Americanization of church music, we saw a large measure of me come in to the music. What we also saw, because in the 19th century, we saw a radical shift in the way we viewed church. We had this conversation about a year ago. Is church primarily an exercise of worship by the saved or is church primarily a place to preach the gospel to the lost and up until the 19th century in America the answer to that was church is a place for the worship of the saved then we shifted it and we made major effort out of turning church into a place to evangelize the lost. And our music followed suit. Our hymn book is absolutely filled, folks, with evangelistic songs. We sang one last Sunday night, I want to be a soul winner for Jesus. Our, our hymn book is filled with that kind of music. I'm not saying that we just need to categorically throw out all that kind of music. We do need to understand that that kind of music is a major shift from what Bible believers had often tried to do with music. And we need to think about it very carefully. And we need to put our Bible-based bearings and foundations down firmly to understand we just simply, folks, we, do, we cannot afford the luxury of just running around scathing everybody on the music they use when the bottom line is that they use a musical style that we don't like and God may not like our musical style. We better make sure that we've got that part anchored down before we start shooting at everybody else. And a large part of this is, has been the way that the, the he and the we music of earlier sing, singing transitioned into the I, me, my music of the evangelistic style. Um, and again, I'm not arguing that that's inherently bad or evil music. Please, please, please. I'm, some music is, okay, I'm, I'm going to go back to my, to my favorite whipping post, Church in the Wildwood. Is there anything wrong was saying, I really like Church in the Wildwood and I want to listen to it. I would argue, no. Is there anything wrong with us singing it as one of the hymns in church? I would go, yeah. 
in the first place, <clears throat> I'm a city boy. Okay, the Wildwood doesn't just move me a great deal. I like electricity and air conditioning and paved streets. And, right? <clears throat> so, I mean, what's the doctrine of the church in the Wildwood? I have a place that I love. I, you know, it's an Iowa song. Let the, let the permanent CD reflect that when Rachel Hughes said that, they live in Iowa, okay? That that was not some Nebraskan taking a shot at, at an Iowa. That was my last, yeah, that was the last slide. So, okay, 20 minutes till today, so we're done a little early. Unless you have questions, comments, observations, criticisms, disagreement, Bill. Saw your hand first. So, uh, when they sang the song, songs, what, uh, Well, that's a good question, and, and one of the dilemmas was that they didn't use a consistent tune. The music wasn't, there was no written copy of the music. It's going to vary from church to church. It's certainly going to vary from region to region. In a world in which there's no mass communication to homogenize people like we have. Um, you know, I, t I was telling somebody this morning, I mean, this is just, this is just our world. You're, you know, we talk about a one world government. And my guess is a couple, 300 years ago, people wondered how it would ever be. And I look at it and wonder how it's ever going to be avoided. We stopped in some, and I mean little, dinky, dinky uh, town in Oklahoma to get a sandwich on the way home yesterday. And there working at the subway was a lady from Asia. And I'm just thinking, how did, you know, not how did you end up in America, how did you end up in, in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma? Um, you know, I mean, it would be like going to a remote village in China, walking into a restaurant, and there's an American guy at the counter. Um, you didn't have that homogenization in the ancient world. So the tunes did vary. That was one of the advantages of the writing of the music was that you could have consistency. Not everybody agreed with that. And let's be realistic. If I'm the song leader, um, then the, the entire musical program of the congregation hinges upon my ability musically. So that could be a real bad thing. Um, and, 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 and when you get in, folks, when you get into in the 17th century in the American colonies, they had huge fights about line singing. And they were not always friendly to each other as they talked about some of the things that happened in church services of people who could not sing but insisted on leading the singing. Um, Steve. Yes. How does that all here? Steve points out that music was a huge part of um, the evangelistic efforts. How does that work? And that was your question. How does that fit into what we do? Ooh, that's a great. I mean, that, I'm not mocking. That's a great question. Look, folks. I mean, here's what I'm trying to get. Okay. Let's be realistic. Okay. Let's be truthful, and then, and, then from a, and then from a position of truth, let's try and work through this. Our spiritual forefathers, 19th century Americans, they went out and wrote or pirated contemporary music and attracted large crowds through the use of contemporary music to preach the gospel to people. 
and 100 years later, we claimed that music as virtually inspired from Mount Sinai and sacrosanct, and nobody else is allowed to do that. And I think the reality, Steve, is like it or lump it, we're on very thin ice. I'm not going to do it. Some of those songs were bar songs. You want me to put that on the... Somebody's got to tell him. Somebody's... <laughs> Diane said somebody had to tell him that. Um, I, I think, Steve, the reality is that we need to understand that just because the song is contemporary, it's not evil. But there has to be more to it than that. All of that music was not good. That's my point. A lot of that music wasn't good for reasons that had to do with the fact that it just wasn't good music. I mean, it just, it just wasn't good music, folks. It really, it really didn't harmonize with some things that the Bible taught. And obviously, we're going to write music that reflects what we believe the Bible teaches. Okay? I mean, we have to understand that a lot of that revivalism followed on the heels primarily of a man by the name of Charles G. Finney, and that Finney had huge, huge problems in the way. I mean, he gave us, he gave us things like the public invitation in the mourner bench. Um, he, he contributed heavily to this notion that we can orchestrate things in such a way as that we will have a revival. And when you get to the end of Finney's life and ministry, what you discover is that he admitted that much of what he had labored to produce had, had resulted in an abysmal failure. Um, and yet many in our movement passionately cling to his methodology as the way Jesus did it. Um, and again, my argument is going to be we, we just, we, we're, we're not going to spend our time beating up on Finney or certainly not Moody or Billy Sunday or any of these men who were used in a great way. But let's try and be realistic about what they were doing. Um, Let's try and figure out the best we can what is the most biblical model for a church. And then and we're not, let's not spend our time just beating up other people indiscriminately because we think that they've gone off the deep end when the reality is that our roots are in the deep end of 19th century American culture. Um, so, okay, having said that, we're going to do church now with our regular song service and... I, I have no idea what that music will be this morning, so. 